Well, good morning, everyone. Pastor Russ is up in Oklahoma this morning with his family. His oldest daughter um, is graduating from um, uh, graduate school, and so they're up there celebrating with her this weekend. So he asked me to share today, and he specifically asked me to share my story with you guys, because I know that a lot of you in here, especially those that have, been, that have come in the last year and a half, you don't know my story, and you probably have a lot of questions, like, why's that dude in a wheelchair? And so he wanted me to talk to you about this, and I'd like to do so in a way that deals with a question that I think many people struggle with. It's a, it's a question that we all wrestle with, but we particularly wrestle with it in ways that we don't often like to talk about in church. And the question is, is God cold-hearted? Is God distant? And maybe another way to say it is, does God care? Does he care about what's going on in your life? Is he involved with what's going on in your life? Or did he just millions of years ago kind of kickstart everything and then leave us all to fend for ourselves? That's what it can feel like sometimes. It really can. Let me share my story with you. Um, I was very blessed to grow up in a family that taught me all about Jesus. And I, I learned from my parents through, through story, through precept and through example. They taught me about Jesus and I, and they also surrounded my life with a lot of amazing people who poured into me. And I just grew up in this mindset that God is good, that God is for me and that God loves me. And so I lived my childhood from that, from that mindset. And, uh, but eventually whenever I became a teenager, I started kind of drifting away from the faith. And I can look back now and I can realize that probably happened because it was still my parents' faith. It hadn't become my faith yet. It hadn't sunk down into my heart and changed my life just yet. And so consequently, I just started rebelling all the time. I wanted to push back against all kinds of authority, push back against my parental authority. I pushed back against school authority. I pushed back against God's authority and his place in my life. And I was just all about me, living however I wanted to, do, to live. Whatever I wanted to feel, I would go and do something. If uh, that meant sleeping with somebody, I'd do that. If I meant you know, getting drunk or high, I'd do that. If that meant doing something that caused somebody in my life pain, well, that was just too bad for them because it was all about me. And then on June 14th of 1992, my whole life changed pretty dramatically. It was a Sunday afternoon and I was swimming at my then high school girlfriend's house in Wiley, Texas. Wide awake, Wiley. And uh, I dove off of her diving board into the pool, and when I did, I hit my head on the bottom, and I broke my neck. And I became instantly and completely paralyzed from the shoulders down. Now, at the time, I was 18 years old. I had graduated from high school about three weeks prior to that. And, man, the world was before me. I could go anywhere I wanted to go. I could do anything I wanted to do. I could be anybody that I wanted to be. And, uh, and man, now it was all gone. Um, I had all kinds of hopes and dreams and ambitions for the future. And now all that came crashing down. And so I was filled with all kinds of despair and all kinds of questions. I didn't know what, what my life was going to be like anymore. I, I had built... My whole identity up to that point on my physicality. I loved athletics. I loved 
being in sports and, 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 and going outdoors and doing all kinds of things that stressed my body to the end. I, I love exerting myself. And so my whole identity was built around my body and now my body didn't work anymore. And so I didn't know who I was anymore. I didn't know what my future was going to be like or how I was going to move forward in life. And, uh, and so thankfully I had a lot of amazing people that poured into me and they walked alongside me and helped me, helped encourage me to, to cling to God and to hold fast to him. And so I, I tried to do so. I tried to tried to kind of wear a veneer of that everything was okay and that I was, I was good in my faith and I was, I was going to trust God through this and believe that he was going to do something miraculous and awesome in my life. And yet inside, I know that I was filled with all kinds of questions, all kinds of wonderings and doubts and fears. And, and so I would ask God oftentimes in my heart, don't you care? Don't you care about me? Why did you let this happen? Why didn't you do something? God, why haven't you come through for me yet and brought healing into my life? Well, over the next several years, God graciously came alongside me and he kind of taught me through personal experience with him that yes, he is there and yes, he does care. And so, you know, I, and one of the things I've realized over the years just through interacting with people, is that a lot of people have been where I was. Their situation may be a little bit different, um, but they felt those same feelings of despair and, and questioning. And so, uh, you know, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to talk about that. Um, I, I think a lot of people seem to have this mindset that God just kick-started everything and that he then left us a note that said, I'll see you guys later. Have a good time. That he's there but he's not really available, that he's not really listening, that he really can't do anything. And so we ask the question, does God actually care? I think more and more people are wrestling with this, not just for academic reasons per se, but because of personal experience, like when a prayer goes unanswered or when some kind of suffering or injustice goes overlooked time after time after time. Or something so awful, so tragic happens that you're just left wondering, God, why didn't you do something? You're God. You could have done something there, God. Why did you let that happen? That's a question that a lot of, a lot of people have dealt with throughout human history. An example would, would be one of Israel's favorite kings, um, King David. If you go back and you look in the book of Psalms, tons of his psalms, deal with this issue where he's questioning God. Maybe one example would be from Psalm 13, where he says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long really means how much longer, which means that David had been praying and praying and hoping and hoping and waiting and waiting and waiting for God to show up, and he just didn't know if God was ever going to do that. Um, yes, maybe, maybe it, the main question in our day is not, is God good? But is it simply, um, what good is he? What good is he? Does he even care about me? Maybe even in a place like that. Maybe you at one time felt so close to God, but now you're just not quite sure anymore. Maybe you've been praying, not just for days or weeks or months, but for years 
And you're just not sure if God's ever going to answer that prayer. Maybe you've been pouring your life into a person or into a need in your community and things never seem to get better. And in fact, they just seem to get worse and worse and worse. Maybe you're dealing with some sort of an illness or some sort of a pain. Maybe you've gone through some kind of loss. Maybe you've been battling an addiction or a habit and you're going to church, you're praying, you're, you're doing the right things, but where is God in the midst of all that? Have you ever asked that question? Someone once described it to me this way, and I'll never forget these words. He said, I can't prove that God doesn't exist, but my life can prove that he doesn't care. Well, there's a story in the Bible about three siblings, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And I know a lot of you have heard those names, and something happens in their family that challenges their faith to the core. It shakes the foundations of their faith. And it leaves them wondering, God, where are you? Where were you? Why would you let this happen? And so for the rest of our time today, I thought I might walk through this particular story to see if this story has anything to say about your story or about my story. It's from the Gospel of John in chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 1, and you can follow along as I read. He says, now, a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. And so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And this story begins, as many stories in the Gospels do, with someone asking Jesus for help. It happens all the time. But this time it's actually different. It's a little unique. This time it's not a request from a stranger. This time it's not a request from a stranger on the street or just a random person in the crowd. Jesus knows this family. In fact, Jesus knows this family really, really well. Bethany was just a few miles east of Jerusalem. And when Jesus would travel from Galilee down to Jerusalem, he would often stay with this family in their home. And in fact, that's why John tells us that this is the same Mary who poured perfume on Jesus' feet and wiped it with her hair. And by the way, that story hasn't happened yet. That's still another chapter away. But John is like foreshadowing, um, saying that this same family that you're going to hear about in the next chapter, um, this is the family that Jesus was really close to. He was, he was tight with them. He spent time with them. He shared meals with them. He laughed with them. He cried with them. In fact, Jesus is such close friends with Lazarus that if you notice, Martha and Mary don't even mention his name when they write to Jesus. They simply say, the one you love is sick. And that phrase can also be translated, your dear friend or even your best friend is sick. Notice also that they didn't even ask for help. They just kind of tell him what's happening. And it's as if they had this kind of internal understanding um, this agreement in, my, in their minds that, hey, Jesus, we know you and you know us. We've spent time together. We're tight. We know what you can do. And so surely if anything was to ever happen to us, we know that you'd be there. We know that you'd show up. We know that you'd care because that's what best friends do. You know, when you love someone and they're in need, you don't stop to check your email. You don't pick up the remote and surf around on Netflix a little while longer. When someone you love is in need, you drop everything and you show up. 
And Jesus loved this family. In fact, in verse 5 of the story, John tells us that explicitly. He says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then what's so surprising is what we read next when John writes, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. So let's get this straight. Jesus hears of this family's emergency. And he says, I love this family. This is a special family. It's a unique family. A family that I'm close to. And then he basically does nothing about it. He just stays where he is two more days. And it, it doesn't look like he's even busy with anything. John didn't tell us that he's in a meeting somewhere or that he's given a sermon or that he's got somebody else that he's trying to help or heal. It's just, just as if Jesus waits intentionally. And he doesn't just wait. He, he waits until he knows that Lazarus has died. And then John writes, So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Believe? Believe what? Believe that you don't care about your friend? Believe that you had better things to do, that you were preoccupied? You'd rather believe that, that you'd rather be off by yourself or praying over there or thinking about something that you're wanting to teach about on another time? You know, that name Lazarus in Hebrew, it's pretty interesting. It means God has helped. God has helped. But at this point in the story, it looks just the opposite, doesn't it? God hasn't helped. God didn't help. Maybe God couldn't help. He waits two days. Two long days. You know, so much of our faith kind of hinges on that space between when we make a request of God for help and whenever we get to that space where we say, I don't know, is he going to show up? Is God really going to be there? That's the two days. It's that space when God could have stepped in to heal your marriage. It's that space where God could have stepped in to heal that loved one of yours. You know, that, well, that was sick. That, you know, at one time it was just bad, but now it's gotten worse. It's that space between those two days where we ask that question, does God care? It's a question that we all wrestle with. And whether we like it or not, one of the things that we have to see in this story is that Jesus waits for, for a reason. It's not an accident. He's not forgetful. He didn't have something better to do. He does this for a reason. It's on purpose. And I believe that that's because Jesus knew that there was something that he wanted us, he wanted to reveal something to us to help us believe in him more. There's something that Jesus wants us to see in him that is more important than anything else that's going on in our life. It's more important than any other request, any other prayer, any other thing that we might think is the main thing. God, if you would just do this. It's more important than that. So Jesus finally goes to Bethany. And, he, and when he arrives, he has three conversations. And we're just going to walk through each of these conversations. And the first is with Martha. Now Martha, as you know from stories in Scripture, is the more kind of outgoing, extroverted, type A, intense 
um, kind of high-strung member of the family. And so it's not surprising that when she hears that Jesus has arrived, that she's the first one out the door to go meet him. And she says, Lord, Martha says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I just love how honest she is with that statement. Did you notice that? God, if you had just been here, God, if you had just done something, in other words, you could have prevented this. You could have done something about this, God. You know, sometimes the only faith that we can muster is simply to be honest with God with where we're at. You know that? Sometimes faith is just raw honesty. I've heard people say that, um, they'll say something like, well, I, I don't know how to have faith. Well, do you know how to yell? Do you know how to be honest? Do you know how to get angry? Do you know how to, do you know how to express your feelings? Well, that's it right there. That's faith. I wonder what that phrase would be like for you in your life. God, if you had just been here, my career would not have stalled. God, if you had just been here, my kids would not be struggling. God, if you had just been here, my marriage wouldn't have failed. God, if you had just been here, my heart wouldn't be broken. I wonder what those words would be for you. Like many of you, Martha's faith has been shaken and she's looking for answers. You can kind of see that in there. She's looking for something to grab a hold of here. And Jesus meets her there. And Jesus says this. He says, your brother will rise again. Now Martha, kind of shifting back into a theological mode, says, okay, I know that. He's going to rise again when, at the resurrection and the last day. In other words, I know that there will be a day when God will do what God says he'll do. I know the promises. I'm a faithful first century Jew. And I know where God is going in the world. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. He kind of interrupts her and he says, no, your theology is correct, but it's missing something really important. And then he says these words, words that no other first century rabbi would have said. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. In other words, he says to Martha, there's another kind of life in me that even death can't even touch. There's another kind of life that's available only through me, Martha. So you see, the reason why Jesus wasn't in a rush, the reason why it's fine to arrive just when he did, is that he wants us to see the truth about who he is. He wants us to know the truth about who he is. He uses this phrase when he says, I am the resurrection. That, that's the same way that God would speak of himself in the Old Testament. That word, that name Yahweh that we sang about, it means I am who I am. It's what he told Moses his name was. And he's saying to Martha, Martha, I'm not just a teacher. I'm not just a counselor. I'm not just a religious leader. I am God himself. I'm the one who created the universe. I'm the one who spoke everything into existence. This is the same man who gave us life, who created love and joy, the same God who thought up things like mountains and oceans and sunsets and Chick-fil-A sandwiches. This is the, it's the same God who brought all the good things that we love in life 
And he's standing right before Martha. And he's saying, Martha, you're not waiting for a prophecy. You're waiting for a person. And I am that person. Jesus just said, no, you thought I was a teacher. You thought I was just a rabbi, but I am so much more. You have no idea. I am so much more. I didn't just come to improve your circumstances or to make you feel better in, uh, for, for just a few moments. No, I came to conquer sin. I came to defeat death, to overcome the grave, and to give you hope that transcends every circumstance in your life. And then he asked Martha this amazing question. He says, do you believe this? Do you trust me? Before he does anything, before he steps in to help, do you believe this? You know, part of how we answer that question, does God care, is based on how we answer the question, who do you think Jesus is? Who's Jesus to you? If he's just a teacher or a spiritual leader, if he's just a voice for compassion or justice or love in the world, well, at the end of the day, he offers no real hope. doesn't matter if he arrives on time or two days late or even two days early because sin is still sin, death is still death, and the grave is still the grave. But what if he's more? What if he is more What if he arrives two days late because sickness is not an obstacle for him? What if he arrives two days late because death is not an obstacle for him? Remember, he tells tells his disciples, he says, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. In other words, that you might know that he is more than you think he is. In your life right now, whatever you're facing, whatever kind of difficulty you're going through, he is more than you think he is. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? That's the question that Martha's now wrestling with, that she's now going over. Can I trust Jesus? In a way, the story could end right there. Jesus has told us who he is. He's given us a picture of who he really is and how we should simply... Um, believe in him and and trust in him in that. And that should be enough. But sometimes our hearts need more than just what we need to believe, don't they? So as Jesus is talking to Martha, he realizes that someone's missing. Mary is missing. She's still in the house grieving. You know, it's important for us to know that Mary knew Jesus was there. And yet she didn't come out to meet him. So it's as if she felt her disappointment so deeply, so intensely that she couldn't even face Jesus. You know, it's like those times where you go through something in life and, and you think, it's gotten so bad, I can't even pray anymore. I don't even want to go to church. I don't want to be around anybody who's going to talk about things like faith and religion and God. It can just break your heart. So you see, another conversation is now needed. And so Jesus sends Martha to go get Mary, and she says, the teacher is here, and he's asking for you. He's asking for you. I think that's so beautiful. You ever had somebody come looking for you whenever you're down or you're discouraged, maybe through a phone call or an email or maybe showing up at your door? 
I think Jesus is saying that no matter how deep the pain goes, God's grace goes even deeper. Mary comes out to meet him and she falls at his feet and weeping and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now on the surface, that looks like the same exact thing that Martha had said, except this time there's a difference. In the original language, that word, my brother, my is used so emphatically. Mary's saying, that's my brother, my brother, my brother. I thought you loved me. And yet, why, am I, why did you let me feel this pain? In other words, this isn't just any loss. This is my loss. And these words cut Jesus to the core. The text says that when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, that he was deeply moved in spirit and in truth. So the same man who said, I am the resurrection and the life, now is deeply moved and troubled. And so he asked, where have you laid him? And then no more words are exchanged between Jesus and Mary. It's kind of a different conversation. <laughs> you know, he had to meet Martha with theology. It's as if he had to meet, Jesus, or meet Mary with his heart. Um, so Jesus goes to the tomb, the place where his best friend is dead and in the grave. And he does something so, so surprising. He goes to the tomb and he falls to the ground and begins to cry and cry and cry. Now the text simply says he wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. But it's important for us to know that in the first century, weeping is not that quiet, um, kind of personal, in your, in your Kleenex sort of sort of thing that we do a lot of times. Weeping means wailing. Weeping means bawling. Weeping means screaming. And in fact, Jesus wails so loudly that everyone around him begins to take notice. He screams so loud in pain that people say, isn't this someone that he could help? How in the world could he be so, so grieved? Why did he break down? Well, he broke down because he cared, you see. He loved Lazarus. He didn't come simply because he wanted them to believe something. He came because he loved them so much. He loved Lazarus so much. We see it in the story. It says, then the Jews, the, the, the Jews who, who saw him weeping, they said this. They said, see how he loved him. See how he loved him. Jesus didn't weep because he lacked power. He wept because he was so full of love. See, in this moment right here, the shortest verse of the Bible, we discover that God is not cold-hearted. We discover that God does care. When you're broken-hearted, he's broken-hearted. When you weep, he weeps. His heart breaks when your heart breaks. He suffers when you suffer. And the, word, the, t the, the text says that he is deeply troubled and that's the same word that's often used for anger or righteous indignation. In fact, the same Greek word mean, is often used for the, for the snorting of horses. So it's as if Jesus is visibly angry here. He's breathing loudly. He's it's like a wild animal ready to attack something. And it's not just because his friend got sick. Jesus is angry at death itself. 
He's angry at, the de- at, at, at sickness itself, at, at death itself, at the grave itself. He's angry. It's because he, you know, he's seeing in this moment here um, all, that he came, all that he came to destroy. He's confronting in this moment here with Lazarus' death all that he came to destroy. And he's also seeing what he himself is going to experience when he goes from here to Jerusalem to a cross and to a grave. And so, does God care about what's going on in your life? Well, he died for you. He gave his life for you. He gave up everything for you in that moment. And so, in a way, that should be enough. Enough to convince us that he really cares, that he really loves us. But Jesus didn't finish yet. Um, He gets up and he goes to the tomb and he says, roll the stone away. Now, Martha objects and she says, Lazarus has been buried for four days. Now, four days may not seem like a big deal to you, but four days was a really significant number in those days. According to rabbinic teaching, when a person died, their soul would stay with them, for the, would stay in their bodies for the first three days. And then on the fourth day, the soul would begin to leave. And so for, Jesus, or for Lazarus to be in the tomb four days meant that his soul had already left. It meant that his body was beginning to decay. Four days in a tomb means, hey, Jesus, it's too late. Maybe if you had been here a day after or two days after, or maybe even three days after, you could have done something, but it's four days, Jesus. Don't roll the stone away. There's nothing you can do. Which brings us to that last conversation with the person that you least expect. The conversation was kind of a one-sided conversation. Jesus, the text says, Jesus calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I bet jaws are dropping. I bet people are completely shocked. Lazarus, come out. And he did. The dead man came out. He was renewed. Wish I could have been there to see the shock on people's faces just to just to imagine what, what it was that Lazarus said. Hey guys, I'm back. <laughs> you see, just when you think God can't, he can. Just when you think it's two days late, he's right on time. But for those two days, they wondered where God was. For those two days, they lived with this crushing doubt And this despair. And for those two days, they weren't sure if God cared a lick until they knew um, what God was really able to do. And by the way, this isn't even the main event right here. Um, Think about it. You know, Lazarus walked out of the tomb. Probably could have told amazing stories. But one day, his body began to get sick again. And the doctors couldn't do anything about it. And so he died. Lazarus is the only guy who went to his death thinking, oh man, not again. (laughs) You know, Jesus is pointing us to the main event whenever God's going to say to each and every one of us, come out. Come out. He's speaking his power into our life because you see, God is always up to something bigger 
than you can see. God is always up to something bigger than you can see, more than you can see right now. The Apostle Paul later described it as, with these words. He said, now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. You know, now is like those two days. Now is like that painful waiting, that period of waiting. Now is like that bad reflection in an imperfect mirror. But one day, it will all be clear. One day, it'll, it'll be all, one day, it'll be completely clear as to what God is doing. One day, it'll be clear as to why God seemed to delay. One day, if you trust Him, you'll see. There's a former professor of theology at Yale, a guy named Nicholas Wolterstoff. Interesting name. He lost his son, Eric, who was 25 at the time, in a climbing accident. And over the next year, he wrote a series of essays reflecting on that experience. And then he published those in a book called Lament for a Son. And in it, he wrote about when he received that horrible phone call, hearing the news of his son's death. He wrote about the pain that he still lives with. He wrote, about, he wrote about the questions that he asked God, questions that'll never go away. God, why did you allow this? Why didn't you do something? And then he wrote about going back to the grave and trying to say goodbye to his son, Eric. The tombstone was still in place. The questions about God were still lingering. And then he wrote these words I want to share with you today real quickly. He says, I wonder how it'll all go down when God raises him and the rest of us from the dead. Giving us new bodies seems no great problem, but how's he going to fit us all together in a city? Eric here, man of the 20th century, has to be fitted in with someone from long ago who lived in primitive conditions, knowing nothing of airplanes and electricity and neutron bombs, knowing only of the patch of soil which she tended and from which she never strayed more than five miles. Will God have everyone learn computers? Eric would have a head start if so. And what about all the different characters and temperaments that all these people bring? And oh, so many, so innumerably many. I see them stretching way back, their faces eventually becoming a, just a brownish haze. You know, everybody is known by somebody in that crowd, but the memories usually trail off somewhere so that up front here we see and know only a few. But God alone has them all in mind. Now, I don't see how he's going to bring it off. But I suppose if he can create, he can recreate. I just wonder if it's all true. I wonder if he's really going to do it. Will I hear Eric say, Hey dad, I'm back. Then he remembers, he goes on and he says that he remembers that this is the same God who raised his son. And so he says, goodbye, Eric, goodbye, goodbye, until we see. Someday you're going to see, someday you're going to see how much God cared, how much he has been doing behind the scenes. One day you're going to see how much God, how much love God has for you. How much grace is ready for you. If you just trust him, if you just hang on, if you just 
Cling to him in faith. Someday you'll see. And how do I know? Because he gave us the ultimate guarantee. You see, God didn't just kickstart the universe and leave us a note saying, good luck, guys. Have a good time. He came into it. He himself suffered with us. And he went to a cross. Went to a grave. And then on that third day, man, the dead man came out. And he said, hey, Dad, I'm back. Let me pray for us. I just want to, as we pray, I just want to invite you to think about the conversation that you might need to have with God. And there were three conversations in this story. Now it's time for the fourth conversation. That conversation between you and God. And maybe there's a question that's gone unanswered in your life. Maybe there's a prayer request that's just been buried deep within you. And you don't even want to bring it up anymore. Well, this is a chance to talk honestly with God about it. Jesus, it can be so hard to trust in you. Jesus, it can be so hard to know because we can't see. We don't know what you're doing behind the scenes. We can't tell what this is all about. We don't understand why our circumstances are the way they are. And, and yet we are confronted with this amazing truth that you didn't remain at a distance. You as God stepped into our world with us to suffer for us, to go to that cross, to go into that tomb and to come out of that grave so that we could look forward to that day when that will be our story. Your story will be our story. We can look you in the eye and we can say, Hey, Dad, I'm back. So Jesus, help us to cling to that hope this morning. Help us to cling to that hope this day as we try in one little way right now just to take a step of trust toward you, just to hang on and believe that you're an amazing God, that you hold the power over sin and death and darkness and that there's nothing that we have to fear. So we pray this. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things we're going to do to allow, one of the things we can do to allow God's love to come saturate our heart and to, to change the way that we um, go through heartache and pain is to receive communion. You know, and so today, it's whenever we receive that bread and that juice, you know, it's meant to symbolize Christ's crucified body and blood. We pause to remember all that Jesus himself went through and all that Jesus wants to do in our life. And then we receive these elements. You know, when we do that in faith, God changes us from the inside out. He ministers his grace to us in ways that are deep down inside of us. And so here at One Chapel, we practice open communion, which means that you don't have to be a member of this church if you want to receive. If you are a believer in Jesus, you're free to partake. Um, so let me read these verses that Paul writes. He says, on the night that, or, or on the night that Jesus was betrayed, this is Jesus, I'm sorry. When, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and he said, this is my body which is given for you. So do this in remembrance of me. And then, in the same way, he took up the cup of wine. 
And the Lord prayed over it and said, this, is, this cup is the new covenant between me and my people. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul says that every time that you eat this bread and drink this cup, that you're announcing Christ's death until he comes again. And so we're going to do that today. Um, we're going to invite you to kind of swing around from your right and to come pick up a piece of bread and to dip it in the juice and then take it back to your seat to have your moment with Jesus. So let's go ahead and go do that. <clears throat>